This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. This talk if uh, is going to be a rapid fire kind of overview of some broad scope of broad structures taken from the second half of my new book that I'm working on, which is broadly a kind of history of the Western tattoo industry. Um, and yeah, like basically uh, in four parts. So I want to talk about today four moments of connection, which create, I think, the modern Western tattoo industry as we know it, right? The Bristol Tattoo Club first, the Tattoo Club of America, the second international tattoo convention held in Reno, Nevada in February 1977, and the publications of Tattoo Time and Modern Primitives at either end of the 1980s, right? So, first up, Bristol. Um, after World War II, the European and American tattoo industry was pretty much in disarray. By 1955, just a decade after the war's end, the major port cities like Oregon, uh, Portland, Oregon, which had been important hubs for the practice of tattooing, when they were thronging with sailors, no longer really had any working tattoos at all. Tattooing the Oregonian rope punningly is an inherently in-and-out business. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of the war, tattooing had been desperately stigmatized through the association with the sadistic infliction of identificatory numbers onto the arms of victims of the Holocaust at Auschwitz, and through the inscription of blood-type tattooing on Nazi SS officers, amongst other things. Um, moreover, and paradoxically, I suppose, in some senses, the racial science of European eugenics, which had underpinned fascism, had also slowly gained intellectual respectability in Britain and America over the 30s and 40s. And by the 1950s, though waning in overt influence, that pseudo-intellectual tradition had morphed into a more publicly palatable form, uh, for which its proponents claimed was specifically different from Nazi ideology. Um, most significantly, perhaps, the entire landscape of contemporary visual culture had by the 1950s shifted away from the decorative fussy styles of the Victorian, Edwardian and Art Nouveau periods to something resolutely more sleek, minimalist and monochrome, right? Um, buildings, furniture, print, industrial design and fashion embraced styles which explicitly rejected the previous two or three generations of stylistic cues. Some academics have argued that this visual shift itself has intellectual underpinnings in eugenicist thought which prioritise progress, efficiency and hygiene, but in any case, the dominant modernism of mainstream post-war visual culture did not tessellate well with the eclectic tattoo trends of the professional period which had begun in the 19th century and tracked dominant trends ever since. As tattooing fell from fashion, innumerable men and women who'd been tattooed during the war in moments of camaraderie and youthful folly wrote a magazine seeking tips on removal, and given the widespread popularity of tattooing during the war and the inefficiency of removal methods, by the 1950s, there were a whole generation of kids with tattooed parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, many of whom regretted them. And tattooing basically wasn't cool anymore, right? So one man didn't care that tattooing wasn't cool, uh, Les Scuse. So Les Scuse loved tattooing deeply. By 1953, he'd been tattooing for 20 years, but was barely in his 40s. Long enough, I suppose, in the tooth to have earned respect and connections in the industry, but still young enough to have the energy, vision, um, and the visions take the woes of Euro-American tattooing onto his shoulders. So tales of Japanese tattoo conventions, meetings of the Edo Choyukai, were the direct inspiration for Scoose to found the Bristol Tattoo Club in 1953, 
noted in early years as, quote, the only cub of its kind in the world outside of Japan. And in an interview with a local tabloid uh, in 1954, he complained that such were the dire straits for the industry that there were only about eight tattooers left in the UK. If there were more, he hoped, quote, we could organise friendly competitions and it would help raise the standard of the profession, one of the oldest in the world. Many people, he said, think tattooing is common and degrading, only being patronised by people of low mentality. This impression is only due to ignorance and lack of understanding, and my Bristol Tattoo Club has been able to promote a more fair and proper appraisal of the tattoo work among the general public. And so immediately, the profession itself took notice. Um, the club held initial meetings with about 12 members, artists and clients coming together at the Whitehorse Pub in Bristol, but moved to a club called the Cornish Mount the year after, drawing about 60 members in its first year of operation. Members were tattooed with the club logo, uh, a small black bat, in return for their membership dues, and the club quickly attracted not just national but global attention through frequent press and television features. Um, as news articles spread, uh, word of the BTC, Les began corresponding with artists in America, and particularly a guy called Al Shafley in Sandusky, Ohio. Um, and he made the trip to England in 1955, inspiring him to establish his own club, the International Tattoo Club, in 1958. Quickly, this network of artists uh, became the incubator for the re revival of the Euro-American industry. And though previous economic workers claimed the 1970s as the decade which hailed the renaissance of tattooing, um, that title was actually used uh, for a segment on British television as early as 1958. Um, so in 1955, um, just after the start of the club, um, a young Swiss man uh, in his mid-twenties called Rudolf Inhelder attended the second ever meeting of an offshoot of the Bristol Tattoo Club in London. Uh, Inhelder was in a pilgrimage of sorts. Um, he'd become fascinated by tattooing after having read a book called Pierce Hearts and True Love, uh, a vivid but rather unreliable history of Western tattooing, published in 1953. And had contacted the book's author Hans Ebertston, a man who on the dust jacket claimed to not really like tattooing at all, in search for more information. Ebertston in turn suggested he might best contact London tattooer Rich Mingins, who'd been instrumental in helping collate material for the book. It was auspicious timing, uh, really. Um, Inhelder's trip to London was just a year after the BTC had been formed, and his subsequent friendship with Mingins would prove, prove uh, pivotal for the Western tattoo industry in ways that are recently only becoming clear. Um, in short, uh, though he wasn't himself a tattoo artist, Inhelder would become a nexus point um, for nascent networks between European, British and American tattooing and would help foment friendships and working relationships between mainstream and rather conservative tattooers and a diverse group of subcultural tattoo and body piercing enthusiasts. Um, Inhelder really found the networks of the Bristol Tattoo Club and its London offshoots intoxicating. Um, in particular, he was obsessed with Mingin's painstakingly acquired collection of contemporary historical photography and newspaper clippings, which dominated professional tattooing since its inception since the 19th century. One of the reasons Mingin's had been so useful to Ebenstein, in fact, um, is that over his career, Mingin's had established two voluminous scrapbooks of tattoo material, one of photos he'd taken, uh, bought, been sent or traded, and another of newspaper and magazine articles received through a decades-long subscription to a newswire, both of which now were in themselves invaluable archives of the industry's earliest years. 
Um, so after this meeting, um, 1957, Rudy moved to New York for work uh, from Switzerland. He was a physicist with particular specialism in optics, and he found himself particularly useful in the Cold War defense industry. But whilst in America, he found himself longing for the camaraderie, connection and companionship among tattooers and tattooed people he'd found in London a few years earlier. He'd begun to get tattooed once he'd arrived in America, eagerly seeking out what some of the most prestigious artists in the country. Um, but by his own account, he, quote, had difficulties meeting others of the same interest, um, not just in tattooing. Uh, Rudy was gay um, at a time when homosexuality was um, still illegal in the United States. And uh, he was also interested in body piercing, frustrated in part by the outright banning of tattooing in New York City in 1961, following a hepatitis outbreak. Therefore, he told a magazine interviewer some decades later, some friends and I in New York decided to do something about it. Uh, that something was the founding of the Tattoo Club of America in 1963 with his friend Paul McNaughton, um, explicitly conceiving it as a way to replicate the membership networks of artists and enthusiasts which had arisen from Scooz's BTC back in Bristol. The TCA grew really quickly to about 250 members by December 64, void by Rudy's direct solicitation of members from across the country, as well as Canada and from amongst his existing contacts in the UK and Germany. Members in these first years were on average about 34 years old, only 6% women, 24% were professionals and 56% white collar workers. Only about 30% of the Tattoo Club of America were tattooers themselves. And as such, the sharing of detailed trade secrets and techniques proved, proved pretty controversial, actually, for the whole life of the club. And um, the recruitment strategy, though, nevertheless allowed him to build a fragile, short-lived network that encompassed the whole spectrum of the industry. And members, actually, this span um, covered people like conservative battle-hardened military tattooers like Sailor Jerry in Hawaii, through to radical and queer experimenters with tattooing, uh, young and old. An IS-65 membership list includes veteran Brits, Scoose and Mingins from, uh, from the BTC, photo traders, key figures from tattoo scenes in France, Germany, Denmark, Canada, Hong Kong and Australia, tattoo enthusiasts um, who'd also go on to major impacts in their own right. Um, each member's address was also listed facilitating the club's uh, persistence even beyond its own limited existence. But um, the fragile coalition which he dissembled in the mid-60s became increasingly dispersed as the decade went on and certainly into the 1970s. Um, it finally fractured uh, in Reno, Nevada in 1977. At this moment, the second uh, uh, International Tattoo Convention was uh, a moment that Ed Hardy, uh, famous tattooist Ed Hardy, called, quote, the first good look we had at how rapidly the tattoo movement was expanding. And by the 1970s, the tattoo industry was in something of a bind, right? Um, Time magazine had called uh, tattooing's renaissance in 1970. Um, and for the first time since World War II, it was again beginning to find acceptance and visibility in somewhat conventional terms, um, given, for example, exhibitions held at New York's American Folk Art Museum. But it remained stigmatized as its refreshed proximity to polite society revivified old panics about hygiene, atavism and disfiguring follies of youth. Um, tattooing remained banned in New York City, despite attempts by tattooers to persuade the state government that tattooing was an art form. Um, and in England, for example, tattooing had been banned for people under 18 
1969, following a moral panic about young people getting tattooed, and the difficult prosecution in 1966 of an artist who tattooed 12 and 13-year-old boys. Um, that ruling had left the tattoo industry in something of a bind too, as it ruled that tattooing could, in certain circumstances, be a crime, whilst offering no clarity for professionals as to where the line between legal and illegal conduct could be drawn. Um, for industry leaders, the solution was to get serious about self-regulation before such regulations were enforced upon the industry from outside. Um, in the run-up to the convention in Reno, uh, the UK-based International Tattoo Artists Association argued that, quote, we need to protect ourselves, but how we can do this effectively can only come about by discussion in Reno. Um, that convention was well attended. About a thousand members of the public attended. Artists from the UK and Denmark came, Germany too. Artists from across the U US came um, and new visible, new styles were really visible for the first time to the world at large. Um, Hardy himself was particularly stunned by the realistic black and gray fine line work sported by customers of Good Time Charlie Cartwright and Jack Rudy, who traveled to Reno from East LA, where they'd be quietly creating work which looked like nothing else being done at the time. And Cardi Hardy was uh, immediately smitten. Um, less thrilled, however, uh, he was less thrilled by an event held on the final day of the convention. This is sort of where the fracturing comes. At the very end of the convention, organiser Dave Yerku wrote in the following edition of his newsletter, uh, Ed Hardy asked to speak. Ed talked about piercing. He felt, as did the overwhelming majority of artists there, that it did not belong at a tattoo convention and should not be linked to tattooing. In his own recollection, he wrote that piercing, quote, raised the sinister spectre of S&M at a time when we were pushing to gain a little respectability for tattoos. Most of us, said Ed, um, are pushing to expand the work, didn't buy the argument that tattooing and piercing were on the same level. This was meant to be a coming out party for the new tattoo. Um, and Hardy was specifically perturbed here by a performance by Ronan Loomis, uh, an electrical engineer from South Dakota, better known to modern uh, ears as Fakir Mushafar. Uh, the Reno event was also Musafar's coming out as a body modifier um, and during a performance at the convention's final gala he presented feats including laying on a bed of nails across blades, pulling a belly dancer in a cart using hooks pierced into his chest and having wooden blocks broken over his back. His show dominated uh, ex uh, media coverage of the exhibition and I guess clearly did not provide the tone of respectability and caution which Hardy, Yerko and others felt was necessary. Um, for Hardy, the decision was clearly pragmatic and was paired with, a further, paired with a further distaste for facial tattooing, which also projected the wrong image, I suppose. Now, for others, the distaste for piercing was doubtless driven as much by homophobia as it was for professional concerns. And body piercing had blossomed in the context of subcultural sadomasochism amongst gay men, particularly in California, um, and all the key pioneers were at least uh, not straightforwardly straight. Um, and so it gets complicated from this moment on, um, but from this point, like Musafar and Hardy continue to develop their professional artistic projects divergently until history would bring them back together a decade later under another ill-fitting umbrella. In 1989, Fakim Musafar was the first interview featured in the generationally definitive book, uh, Valen Juno's Modern Primitives, and Ed Hardy was the second. Um, I think I've covered this in detail in, in publications elsewhere, um, but basically uh, I think it's right to say that uh, Modern Primitives is not a document of a coherent group of people who all sought to use tattooing 
body piercing and other ritual practice to separate themselves from the modern world. It's the presentation of at least two interrelated groups of people who, by 1989, have been working in close geographic proximity in California for a decade, using similar aesthetics and technological processes for often entirely oppositional ends. Um, Hardy had published his own book, uh, Tattoo Time, uh, in 1982, uh, with the subtitle New Tribalism, sporting a cover of a man's leg, covered in a geometric black design, which reflected the kind of patterns which occur in Samoan PR tattooing, for example, but did not directly claim any authentic lineage with them. Um, but laid over the black work was an enormous, luminous purple snake coiling menacingly up the outstretched limb, a postmodern piece of tattoo art synthesizing Japanese and American traditional notes and running them through a filter of neon 1980s Californian pop. Um, so we have these two projects, right? Modern primitivism and new tribalism, um, principally different by these labels, uh, modern primitivism bringing the past into the present, looking backwards, new tribalism by contrast, prospective, creating something novel. Um, they're divergent and they diverge partly because Musafar is looking for something like authenticity, quite quixotically, whereas Hardy and his collaborators um, are stressing, for example, the um, uh, opportunities available to tattooing as a decorative art. Um, Hardy himself calls tattooing a, a powerful option for the repertoire of contemporary tattooing. Cliff Raven, his collaborator in that book, uh, describes indigenous tattooing as a treasure trove of form. Um, but what we have here is essentially two very divergent oppositional characters, as I said, coming together, right? Um, both Musafar and Hardy, I think, must jointly share credit for bringing this black work style from its brave experimental beginnings into the cultural mainstream. But ultimately, I think it's Hardy who bears the uh, responsibility, bears the credit for bringing the modern tattoo industry into being. And so I'm summarizing a lot and skipping over, and I've really only covered one pillar here. But I think basically, in summary, trends come and go, right? But there are essentially four pillars of the modern European, uh, Euro-American tattoo industry. Traditional, old school, the kind of thing we might call sailor tattooing. Orientalist, uh, largely drawn on uh, Japanese tattooing and its iterations. Black and grey, which Hardy had kind of encountered and incubated following his encounters with Cartwright and Rudy at the 77 convention, and black work. So each of these styles is defined, I think, by a combination of design and technique. And all other styles are arguably cat subcategories, iterations, combinations, and variations of these primary genres. Um, during the 1980s, uh, Hard Hardy revived, canonized, and popularized the first two, traditional and orientalist, and incubated the second two, um, black work and black and grey, through patronage and publication. And so um, we have these networks, all of them come to this bottleneck point uh, in 1977, and through that bottleneck, uh, it's Ed Hardy who filters them into what becomes, in the next stage of this story, a much more diverse uh, industry. So it's Hardy's world, I think, and we just live in it. Um, that's a rapid fire overview for 18 minutes <laughs> uh, of half a century of tattooing. But I think that version of the story, which really connects these histories up through these networks, um, is something which is a, a, an emerging framework for um, the historiography of this period. 
and I hope you've all found it interesting. So thank you for listening. Um, as it's been an overview, uh, always difficult to talk in this format, but um, I'm really, uh, as I said, happy to be here and um, hopefully uh, you'll enjoy the rest of the uh, event. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.